I could create a list of 50 things that make it easy for this day to not be the day that we talk about divesting in business. And you just have to be clear-minded because that adds up. And if it adds up to 10 years of inaction, that leads to just inherent underperformance. As the saying goes, breaking up is hard to do. And you just heard one of our guests today, Andy West, point out that it's also hard for businesses. Companies tend to struggle with divestiture decisions, and selling businesses in a timely manner is an essential part of effective portfolio management. I'm Sean Brown, Head of Communications for McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today's session is about taking an agile approach to managing your company's portfolio. You'll hear about our recent research on how to best determine which businesses to double up on and which to divest, how to divest successfully, as well as insights on how to make sure your M&A strategy is nimble enough to keep up with increasingly dynamic markets. First, let's introduce our guests. Andy West is the global co-leader of our M&A practice. He's a senior partner in our Boston office and counsels top leaders across the healthcare, medical device, high-tech, and industrial sectors on all aspects of M&A strategy and execution. Joining him is Obi Ezekoye, a partner in our Minneapolis office and a leader in our strategy and corporate finance practice. Obi served organizations across a range of sectors with a focus on chemicals, basic materials, and advanced industrials. He's co-author, with Anthony Liu, of a recent article on divesting with agility that you can find now on McKinsey.com. Anthony is an associate partner based in our Dallas office and an expert in M&A and strategy transformations. He's led clients through M&A strategy development, target identification and diligence, as well as divestitures and integrations. Andy, Obi, Anthony, welcome. Obi, let's start with you. Your latest findings reinforce something we've emphasized for quite some time, namely that consistent reallocation of resources, both within a business and between business units, creates better returns. And mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures are obviously one of the main methods to execute on that reallocation. Can you just give us some of the headlines from this recent research? First of all, active portfolio management is one of the biggest levers to improve business performance. Secondly, COVID has accelerated performance gaps both across industries, but also within industries. Now it's more important than ever to be an active versus a static portfolio manager as winners and losers across industries and within industries are taking shape. We've also found that companies often struggle to make uh, portfolio decisions, both on the acquisition side, but especially on the divestment side, and often they make them far too late. And once a divestiture decision is made, executing with speed and conviction is critical. Many stakeholders from your employers, your investors, the market can all be quite nervous when a divestiture decision is announced. So it's very important to move with speed and conviction. You mentioned that the pandemic has accelerated differences both between industries and within industries. How did the crisis cause these gaps to grow? When you look at the average EP, EP is economic profit, so profit above the capital charge. In certain industries, such as semiconductors, pharmaceuticals, personal products, technology, and hardware, if you you look at the long-term implied EP today, you can see that there's a huge increase in the amount of value that these industries have created. You see some other industries that were more exposed, banks, financials, energy, and utilities. So the differences across are accelerating. And you might think that this is because of the way the pandemic affected certain industries, such as airlines, and the way it helped certain industries, such as tech. But that's only part of the story. 
the second part of the story is that there's a growing gap between the top and the bottom quintile companies, even within the same industry. The share of industries with a growing gap within the industry, so within the sector, is growing, whereas uh, the share of industries with a nar- is 83%, where the share of industries with a narrowing gap is 17%. And so it matters what industry you're in, what end markets you're exposed to, and it matters more than ever because COVID is accelerating the gaps. But it also matters how you're performing within your industry, because industry effects only explain about half of the difference. This is now a time to think about, are you the best owner of the asset, or are there assets in, out there in the industry that might make sense to be part of your portfolio? Okay, so before we move on, can you just say a little more about how you define this notion of the best owner or natural owner of an asset? So there are valuable linkages to other businesses that you have distinctive skills that add value versus other ownership structures, that you can provide better governance, that maybe with your other businesses, you have better assets to insights or foresights about the market. You see this in many times of upstream and downstream businesses combined. You have distinctive access to capital or relationships. You have a, a brand that might be valuable in your industry. And I think there's one that's often ignored, which is talent. Right? If you are the go-to place for chemical engineers or you're the go-to place for a, a specific type of software developer, that, that talent linkage can be quite powerful. And of really thinking about, are we, you know, it might be a good business, but we are not the natural owner, or it might be a low-momentum business, but we are truly the natural owner. And let's focus our time and resources to really focus on what we do well and extract the maximum amount of value from that business. Got it. And Let's also reflect a little bit on the research that you did. When you conducted the research, was it on an industry-by-industry basis, or was it looking across the entire economy? The answer is yes, and let me talk about the industry I'm most familiar with, which is the chemicals and materials industry. So we've repeated that analysis for the chemical sector, and we've seen the same trend, that going through the last crisis or even going through this crisis, there's been this big disparity between the top quintile and the bottom quintile that has been expanding. And we thought, well, that's still a relatively large uh, industry. Let's look at a subsector. Let's look at paint and coatings or looking at even a subsector in the industry. And even within kind of sub-subsector catalysts, paint and coatings, additives, you actually do see winners and losers. So where you play does matter. And we should never, uh, un- never underestimate where you play. But your performance within your portfolio also matters, right? There's definitely this balance that management teams have to balance. Understood. So let's dive a little bit more into your research on how to position your portfolio to benefit from these patterns and how an active portfolio strategy creates more value. What we tried to do is to say, you know, portfolio questions and being in the right business is typically entangled with a whole bunch of operating actions and risks and market risks, right? So a bit to Obi's point, what we've tried to do is take a look at the actual power of portfolio moves, controlling for multiple different variables. And the general message is fivefold. One, when we look at strategic choices, and we look simply at what we call refresh rate, and I'll spend a few minutes on refresh rate uh, shortly. So what we try to control for is, are you just changing the mix of your business? Is that inherently good or is that inherently bad based on a revenue mix? And what we found that in our data set, controlling for all of the variables, Companies that move 10 to 30% of their revenues over a 10-year period tended to outperform. And we'll talk a little bit about why. The second thing we wanted to look at was just the industry impact and whether you're placing bets in industries with headwinds or industries with tailwinds. 
has a huge impact in corporate performance, regardless of everything else that you do. But buying and selling as an accelerant, M&A as a tool to fuel this process, how you do that has a big impact, right? Are you a hobbyist? Are you doing occasional M&A? Are you being much more programmatic around how you buy companies, much more selective around how you do divestitures? Those things actually have a big impact on relative performance as well. The fourth thing that we looked at was how do you think about where you buy? Are you buying close to your core? Are you expanding your radius, right? And we there, again, found a bit of a sweet spot in terms of the radius of M&A, where you need to be close enough to your business, right, to, in order to reap the benefits of competitive advantage, whatever it is that you have as your company that makes you special, but not so far away that the value proposition is, is spurious. So we found that companies that have a really thoughtful approach to context and are able to buy into adjacencies actually tend to outperform. Right? All of this is in the context of your strategy, which is our fifth point, right? You have to be very thoughtful about where you're starting from. If you're starting from the middle of the pack and trying to accelerate is a very, very different approach, or you're starting from a very, very different place in terms of what you need to do, as opposed to starting at the bottom quintile, where you have to be much more dramatic and much more drastic. So there's a whole article on this, an article on why you have to put your portfolio on the move, which is out on the wedge. You can go to our LinkedIn profiles. We're all connected to it if you want to read it. It covers all five of these points. Great. And we'll also include this in the show notes today. So can you just take us through how you determine whether you're in the right businesses and how big an influence that has on overall corporate performance? So tailwinds matter when you control for everything else. We're looking at two different metrics. One is economic profit, as Obi mentioned, over a 10-year period. So what is the change in economic profit for a particular industry? So were you in a sector that benefited from growth in economic profit or not? And then we said, what is the correlation between that and actual total return to shareholders, excess return? So this is a CAGR number, your ability to outperform your peers from a share value point of view. And three different categories here. One is companies that started in a high momentum place and stayed there. So you were in a good sector, right? And you can see if you were in a sector that was performing well, that continued to perform well over a 10-year period, controlling for all other moves that you might do, you would have realized 4.4% annual better returns from a share price point of view. So if you're in the fast lane and your industry has great fundamentals, staying there, doubling down, investing in that space actually yielded real returns controlling for all other performance factors. The next category is probably the most interesting, right? This is, if you were in a slow lane, we call the slow lane, right? If you were in a sector that was struggling and you moved your business mix towards a higher performing sector, you simply changed your portfolio, what happened to your returns controlling for other performance variables? Well, your returns, you would have outperformed your peers by 1.7%. If you stayed in the slow lane, if you, if you just out-hustled in your existing business and you did not migrate your business mix towards a higher performing sector, you underperformed by about 0.8% per year. So it's, it's actually really interesting data. Now, look, we'll be able to cut it by, day, you know, by industry and other sectors as we continue to grow the data set, but this is the first look. And I think it shows you know, how important it is to think about where you play and being in areas of momentum, buying and selling assets to maximize your exposure to tailwinds. Thinking about staying in the same place actually is more of a risk than a no-risk move, right? You've got to put your portfolio on the move in order to expose yourself to the, to the tailwinds that matter. And I think with COVID and with the great acceleration that you're seeing in the Delta, 
between how industries are performing and top and bottom quintile players are, how that, that gap is expanding, thinking about momentum is, is extremely important. Thanks, Andy. Let's come back to the notion of a refresh rate that you mentioned earlier. What exactly does that mean? Um, we asked ourselves a kind of a provocative question, which is strategists makes us a little bit uncomfortable, which is, is it just inherently good to move revenue around, right? We controlled for momentum. Of course, we, you just learned it's good to put, to migrate your business, you know, towards tailwinds. We all know that, but it actually is, is, is good, inherently good. But we said, is it just good to move? There are folks who move their portfolio, controlling for other variables, you know, are they, do they tend to outperform? And refresh rate is really how much revenue mix changed for your company over a 10-year period, or what percentage of revenue moved from one business to another. Not controlling for what business it was, but did you just, were you agile? Did you move revenue from one place to another over a 10-year period? A very fundamental question. And we broke this into three different categories. One, you see ponds, right? which is your refresh rate was below 10%. We liken it to just a stagnant pool of water. You stayed in the same place. That was about 53% of our, our sample. So most people, right, will stay, most companies will kind of stay. The revenue is not going to move much, right? You're not going to reallocate a whole lot of that revenue. The next group is rivers, right? These are folks that it's a 23% of our sample where you refresh between 10 and 30%. So 10 and 30% was a meaningful category. Again, 23% of our population. And then rapids, which is you moved a lot, more than 30%. You really changed the profile of your revenue, right, over the course of a 10-year period. And when you look at this, again, we're looking at excess TRS. You see that companies that were managed to migrate revenue in a pretty meaningful way, 10 to 30% without being drastic, really outperformed, right? Now, why? We'll get into that. But if you think about it, you know, inherently, is moving revenue inherently a good thing? No, probably not. But if you think about what goes behind a company that's actually migrating a lot of revenue, the governance, the alignment, the precision of their strategy, the, the conviction around industry trends, again, getting back to momentum, you can understand why companies that migrate a meaningful percentage of their revenue might be in a better position uh, in terms of performance. So we thought that was, that was actually quite, quite interesting. And so I didn't go through all five. If you're interested, feel free to take a look at our article and some of our research. But I thought this was a really good setup to talk about how important it is to think about, are we being aggressive enough? Are we moving enough of our revenue? Are we migrating towards tailwinds that matter? So, so even if an organization adopts that active portfolio mindset and actually moves more quickly in deciding to divest, what are some of the barriers that you see in your work with clients actually executing on that? When you look at social bias and you look at decision-making bias, it, whether it's, you know, I already mentioned the status quo bias, you go through all these biases, there's actually 12 in social science that inhibit management decision-making. All of them affect portfolio moves. And I think just recognizing that there's a massive amount of bias towards the status quo, whether it's at an individual level, whether it's how you govern, whether it's how you talk about and evaluate assets, whether it's how you allocate risk, those are real. They're very, very real. And when you think about how you manage those, two things I would say. One, alignment. Just think very much about alignment. Most of the times when I go into a company or I talk to clients and senior executive teams, what they will say is, I'll talk to 10 different executives. I will get three great ideas from each one in terms of what needs to be divested, where they're doubling down, what capabilities they have, what industries they want to bet on. They're very rarely aligned, at least to a degree where you're actually going to be able to act and overcome that bias. The second thing is just on the facts. You need to get clear, have conviction around the data and conviction around where you want to place your bets and where your skills lie. 
And without both of those things, you can't overcome the bias because somebody's going to think about, I built this business. It's my legacy. The price is too high. We don't have enough cash. Like, think of all of the things that stop you from moving your portfolio. And so what you don't want to do is litigate divestitures, litigate acquisitions, right, based on these biases and based on a lack of alignment. Because when you're in the marketplace, you're exposed, right? You're affecting your reputation as an M&A, as a deal maker, buying and selling. Okay, so you mentioned programmatic M&A earlier, Andy, which you've written a lot about before. What role does programmatic M&A play in the context of industry momentum and refresh rates? And does the size of the deals matter in relation to the company? So, uh, look, I think we have found when you look at the things I just described and you add, you throw a programmatic M&A on top, we see even a further accelerant, right? Meaning taking lots of bites, uh, placing several bets on a, on a theme that you believe in. But the point around programmatic M&A is not so much about doing small deals relative to the size of the parent. I think it is important because the parent needs to be able to maintain focus on its core operations, not as have M&A as a distraction. But it's really, again, about conviction. And when I look at having done this research for 10 years, if I look at companies who are programmatic about deal making, it means they're very purposeful. It means they have the alignment I just talked about. It means they're generating enough resources, enough capital to drive deal making, right? It means they have the discipline to execute. There are a lot of fundamentals behind what it means to be programmatic, to have that programmatic operating model that I think are inherently good to make companies just more competitive. And it also indicates that they have clarity in their strategy, right? Because you can't be programmatic unless you have strategic clarity to begin with. So it's not just doing a lot of deals. It's doing a, lot of, it's doing a series of deals along a certain strategic theme. It's investing behind that strategy in addition to doing deal making, right? I just want to reinforce that. It's not that the deal synergies are paying for the strategy. We're going to deploy a billion dollars against a particular strategy, going into services, expanding our, our footprint in Asia, if whatever, you're spending that money. You can do it with deals. You're also going to spend on the back of those deals, which is, to your point, OB, it's the strategy unlock. m and programmatic m and just a tool, right? But using it effectively requires real skill and real resources. I think it's a great, a great point. OB, um, for your article on divestitures, you surveyed a range of executives on the reasons why companies can be slow to divest. Was there anything in the responses that yielded any surprises? Was there anything surprising from those responses? We found that nearly half the executives believe they held on to their non-core assets for too long. So either they should have divested them or divested too late. And what's interesting is that a very small number thought they divested too early, which is kind of interesting about how portfolio inertia just dominates the boardroom on this. And then we asked the people who, who waited too long to divest, what were some of the reasons? And you can see at some of the cognitive biases that Andy had mentioned coming out in the reasons, just waiting for the business to improve. We've all been in reviews where we see the magical kind of hockey stick graph where the industry is declining or the or revenues are declining, but we think in about, it's always, it's typically about 18 months from now, the industry or the revenues are going to turn around. Lack of management focus or incentive. They're just, management's too busy fighting fires or they're not incentivized, or in a multi-business company, a business unit leader is uh, incentivized for having a, a larger, having a larger business or a larger portfolio. You know, difficulty of replacing lost earnings. And you might think that, well, that, that could be a real reason. But if you take a shareholder's perspective, if you're not the best owner of the assets, those lost earnings, those earnings are actually put to better use maybe under a different ownership structure. 
Now, this entanglement complexity, that, that can be quite real. This one is, is a case-by-case basis. We found that many of the big rocks uh, from disentanglement can be overcome with careful planning, but you have to actually do the work to see what are the elements from a operating model, from a operations, from a plants, from a people, from a systems to do the disentanglement. And then losing benefits of scale. When I've talked to some senior executives, they see the benefits of the divestiture. They feel like assets might not be core, but they quite frankly just don't want to get smaller. Sometimes there may be synergies and the like, but there is also psychological benefits of scale, being the leader of a big company or a big business inside of a company. That's very understandable. And, and so how do business leaders, in your experience, overcome this inertia, these tendencies to stick with the status quo? Are there any particular barriers that they need to break through? One is no clear strategy and no action plan to get one. And if you take nothing away from the rest of this talk, it's that M&A decisions, investor decisions must be clearly anchored in corporate strategy and, and not the other way around. Otherwise, um, the business development or corporate development team is just running around looking at potential deals all the time. So having a clear strategy. The second is some of the biased ruling decision-making. And these are some of the biases we talked about, loss aversion, hoping things are going to turn around without a plan for that to happen, some cost fallacies. I've worked with companies that have uh, made investments that haven't pound, panned out, but no one really wants to be the person to say this investment didn't work and there's another, a better ownership structure. Right? And then the last one, the world of potential options is quite large. And I think this links quite nicely to the first one, which is businesses, business development, corporate development teams need to be anchored with a clear corporate strategy. And then it, it narrows down that all the different portfolio options that could be. So how do you recommend addressing these issues? Again, creating a clear corporate strategy that clearly states where M&A and divestitures fit. So do I need new capabilities? Do I need new market access? Are there complementary or there's something complementary with something that I already own? You know, there are certain tools that you can do to, to de-bias decision-making. One, involving the board. Board members typically like to be part of these decisions, right? Having conversations with trusted investors. I've worked with teams that do an actual, they do an opposition intelligence team that actually tries to argue the opposite position. And as Andy said, the company and the management team typically have the best view of the future of industry momentum. And then lastly, uh, combine top-down hypotheses with granular data to get your own view of where the portfolio is going and combine that with your corporate strategy. So these are some of the tools that we've seen management teams break free. Okay, so you've also alluded to two different dynamics that can delay effective divestment. One is just around the decision timing, but the other is around the timing of the actual execution on the sale. Where do you see the biggest challenges within both these dynamics? I think sometimes those two questions get commingled, and that just, that just delays decision-making across both. So let me answer the second question first. Once you've made the decision to divest, there is a benefit of moving with speed. But this is the one where there's, there, there aren't hard rules of thumb about how fast that can happen. In many of the industries that I spend most of my time, which are you know, kind of heavy industrials and process industries, there's just physical entanglement. There's plants, there's assets, there's actual capital that needs to be spent to divest. And that's real painstaking work to separate. In certain other industries, they can go from announcing a divestiture to separating very quickly. So I think that's an industry-by-industry industry case. I think what delays the decision to invest, it goes back to, and I'd love to hear Andy and Anthony's uh, perspective on this, 
is clarity around the strategy. Because if you do have clarity around the strategy, then it becomes quite clear does a com- asset fit into the strategy or not. Yeah, I'll add that, um, you know, when you look at the last two uh, recessions, what, what we tend to see that, you know, companies tend to stray away from that core strategy mindset you know, especially what, what happened re- most recently last year, I had several conversations going into the pandemic. You know, people were holding off on, you know, doing portfolio moves, doing divestitures. Uh, and part of my, and my advice was like, hey, looking back at 2008, you know, the time to prepare for those types of moves, it takes time. It takes six, nine to 12 months sometimes to prepare the disentanglement, the sale process. If you actually do want to put something out to market. So those that did pause during you know, the, the height of the pandemic, you know, any of the planning, any of the preparation was left flat-footed come, come, to, come around this time this year when they probably would have wanted to put some things out the market. It is just that conviction, right? And it's really hard to surface for management teams, the honest, hard discussion. And that's why you see so often deal-related discussions becoming actually a backdoor, as, or as uh, Obi mentioned earlier, the strategy, right? What you're not really debating is a deal. What you're debating is the fact that you never really believed that you should get in or out of a particular business. And then you lay that on top of all of just the human things associated with exiting an industry, particularly for conglomerates and companies that have been in a particular business for a very long time, or maybe the business is co-mingled with headquarters and you're in a small town. I mean, there's just, you can, I could create a list of 50 things that make it easy for this day to not be the day that we talk about divesting a business. And you just have to be, clear-minded because that adds up. And if it adds up to 10 years of inaction, that leads to just inherent underperformance. So what do you think drives the performance gap between slow and speedy execution of separations? How does more speed factor into the overall success of the divestment? We are not saying rush into these decisions. We're actually saying the way the language I use is move slow and move fast, measure twice, cut once. So you're really doing most of the work of separating the companies actually before announcement, right? You're, you're starting to stand up, the, stand up the systems. You're doing all of that work. You're at least uncovering many of the roadblocks before announcements because once you announce, it's like the gun goes off and things will come up and you really do have to move, move quite quickly there. Our research shows there's a dramatic effect that delays in separation uh, has on returns. Well, we found that you know, significant delays created shocks to the business um, that were hard for them to recover. This took the form of organizational disruption, such as attrition, negative recruiting, loss of, you know, focus or momentum, ongoing improvements often get delayed, and also just general nervousness of the markets and investors. The key message is, you know, the markets can be quite unforgiving when it comes to delays and poor execution, especially when it comes to M&A or divestitures. Uh, Again, we're not advocating separating quickly, just haphazardly, you know, just to do it under 12 months. You know, what we see is that successful ones took time and made the effort to fully prepare both before announcement and before closing the transactions in question, even if it took more than a year to close. Some of the most successful and complex spins I've worked on were completed after 12 months. Um, with some of the preparation, you know, beginning months and, you know, sometimes, you know, the strategy was set years in advance uh, before any announcement of a potential separation. Got it. So part of it is sort of the perception of the uh, speed of execution, right? There's a lot of uh, pre-work that gets done, but and it, and it sounds like you know the speed and execution, while very important, also has to be very thoughtful. What do you think the keys are to creating this agility that we've talked about today that it, that is so important? So the markets are increasingly dynamic. Traditionally, I've gotten the question: is like, should we sell this business or should we buy this business? 
And I think it's reframing the questions, are we the best owner of the businesses, even if they might be some of the more attractive businesses that you're in. And then having a consistent framework applied to all assets is quite important. And having an objective, transparent process is also important. For frequency, we've seen uh, time and time again that this is done in response to a crisis. Now, there could be external pressure. It could be during a recession. It could be that the market's turned against you. And then there's the question of, should we sell? And quite frankly, those might not be the times where you're going to get the best valuation. So we think that this should be done annually. Health checks should be conducted alongside industry or market events. And there really should be a continual refresh of the relevant data that supports it. And there's just a fear of making big moves to navigate the roadblocks that happen in the divestiture. I've found that it's very hard to green light, but it's easy to stop. It's like almost everyone has veto power. Okay, so what are some of the tactical considerations that folks need to consider in in just making sure they're getting their divestitures right? Anthony? As you can see from our research, we've shown that performance of divestitures varies widely from deal to deal. However, we found that most of uh, the most successful ones got four things right. Uh, they aligned their separation strategy with their core strategy, ensuring that their actions were consistent with the long-term aspirations for their businesses. They also had a win-win mindset grounded in the firm understanding of how value can be unlocked uh, through the separation. And then finally, they also moved with urgency, you know, while ensuring that they address entanglement risk and implications up front. Empirical evidence shows that, you know, divestitures that take longer to complete destroys value and you know, this is further impacted by increased costs, delays due to, you know, underestimating the effort required to disentangle and, and just separating the businesses. Okay, so can you just describe for our audience what a win-win mindset means in this context of divestitures and M&A? There's two-thirds chance that the, the positive, the, the sign, positive or negative, is going to be the same for Parent Co. and Spinco. Now just think about that, right? The odds are... You know, you know, the prisoner's dilemma of us winning and the other side losing is actually quite, quite low. So if you really want to play your odds, if you really want to outperform, win-win is the right mindset. Obviously, you don't want to go and lose-lose, but it's most likely going to be one or the other, which I think is just really important to be practical and to understand that gamesmanship usually doesn't pay. Got it. So you don't want to try and have it be a win-lose, but how do companies go about making these deals win-win? Um, you know, results cut across fields and industries. However, the common theme for these cases often focused on unlocking, you know, fundamentally different businesses with different capital needs or distinct advantages as standalone entities. Uh, we see this, you know, in specific, in, in specific sector trends, for example, in the farm industry where, you know, we see divestments between capital or R&D intensive therapeutic areas from less intensive segments such as consumer health. You know, win-win will always be a you know, possible as long as you can stay true to what drives intrinsic intrinsic value to, to unlock in your industry, your segment, or at the individual business level. Management needs to recognize that these are fundamentally different businesses with distinct value drivers that most often than not uh, have few synergies between them. You know, by separating, it lets, you know, each entity focus on their core to effectively drive growth and performance. This includes better allocation of capital based on different, you know, growth and risk return profiles, while also providing the opening to reinvent the company with new leadership, new operating models, and new perspectives on what the company should be. Now, I've, I've seen this quite, quite a bit recently in the technology sector, where I spend most of my client service time, um, where companies are separating lower growth, capital intensive, but 
you know, cash flow healthy business for, uh, from smaller, more nimble ent- enterprises that probably need the space to grow. And, you know, the, the space comes in the form of having smaller, leaner infrastructure without the burden of a large corporate center or complex BU structure that, you know, and this can only occur during a separation in many cases. Thank you. So let's say now you've decided to divest, you've moved quickly enough on that decision, and you base your decision on a clear corporate strategy and everyone is aligned. So what are the key things that are next after that? So first, you have to make sure you've identified any deal killers. And for example, we, we mentioned competitive response as a risk. One of my you know, clients in a hyper-competitive technology segment recognized that, uh, you know, that there was significant revenue risk from competition poaching accounts while separating one of their largest business units. They spent considerable time and investment prior to public announcement to ensure that account teams had the resources, you know, the messaging uh, to respond to any of those uh, market moves, competitive uh, moves um, from, from other players in the market. And, and it worked out really well for them uh, because they were, to, it, they were to anticipate and head off some of this disruption that could happen from externalities beyond the internal politics, beyond the internal disruption that they were going to face. You also have to define, you know, the perimeter and, and not just where people and assets go, but setting a baseline of where value is going to come from in the potential transaction, you know, while fully understanding the universe of options. You know, for example, is it a spin or is it a sale to corporate or a PE? You know, each of those options have different, um, you know, first of all, preparation steps, but also value levers uh, to, to get the most out of your, your deal. You know, more often than not, perimeter decisions are made in a vacuum without fully thinking about how to package or even dress assets for divestments. And this leads to lost value and missed opportunities. And then finally, you, you have to understand the separation issues and have a plan in place to address them. Unlike acquisitions where you can sometimes wait until closing um, a deal before, you know, kicking off integration planning, separations, however, the clock starts when you announce. And you essentially run out of time at closing because you have to have everything in place. You have to have the assets stood up or ready to be transitioned to a buyer. Every day in between, you know, that announced the close, you're either protecting or you're destroying value in your divestiture. So one other question that comes up is, you know, where in the organization should responsibility for portfolio management lie to ensure that it's agile? And at what point does top leadership get involved um, and for how long? I think it's the whole top team. And I think it, it, one, of the, one of the roadblocks comes is that it's the, the team that's making the decision it can, be quite, it can be quite small. And then you see that, oh, there may be some significant entanglements on the people side. There can be some significant entanglements on the operations side or from IT or some or, – or, so I do think it has to be a top team decision. Yeah. And that cuts through biases. I mean, you really need to get into the weeds of understanding the businesses and, you know, the entanglements to be able to assess that, you know, beyond, you know, hey, do we think this is, you know, are we the best owner and potential value? I think it's a really thoughtful question, right? I mean, if, if I were to, to break it out on the top team, you got to build the facts. That's usually a corp dev team. What are the perimeters? How do you think about how much dry powder you have? How much do you have to invest behind M&A? How much proceeds are going to be developed, you know, from a divestiture point of view? Uh, you know, I think that's all, or, or created by divestitures. I think that can be on the back of the corp dev team. I think from a strategy point of view, is the strategy linked to this? Do we have clear view on the market trends? Where are we placing our bets? Where is momentum? Lining that up with that view of capital. And then obviously the, the top team is, 
you know, setting the guardrails. What are we willing to do? What will our investors let us do? What is our legacy going to let us do? I mean, these kinds of things are, it's everyone. But again, don't let that overwhelm the specificity of the actions. Like just, you know, start checking these things off. It's not rocket science, but it's bringing them all together. That's hard. Obi, Anthony, Andy, this has been a fantastic conversation and really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and, and share your insights with our audience. And thank you to everybody in our audience for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about M&A and divestitures, we invite you to check out our M&A Insights Hub on McKinsey.com. You can also read the article that Andy mentioned, Why You Need to Put Your Portfolio on the Move, which you'll also find at McKinsey.com. And we'll be including links to both in the show notes. You can also find the transcript of this conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room collection page at McKinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 80 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at McKinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com slash ITSR. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.